Good morning, Midland Free. Good morning. Thank you. My name is Pastor Jeremy. Welcome here. We're glad you're worshiping with us today. Let me pray for us as we continue to worship. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the word that you have in store, Lord. We pray that it be your word and uh, not mine. Thank you for the children that are exiting now. We pray that you bless them and their teachers as they serve and learn more about you. And we're just so thankful for all that you do, because all that you do is good, even when we don't get it. But we pray that we would. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor Andre Tracome stood in the pulpit of his church and looked down at the uplifted faces of his congregation. Tall, blonde, and bespeckled, the 41-year-old minister was a Protestant Huguenot and pastor of the Reformed Church of France in a small congregation clustered in the center of villages in a remote mountainous region. On this Sunday morning in August of 1942, Pastor Tricome felt called to deliver a sermon that he knew would threaten his life, the lives of his wife and their four children, and the lives of his entire congregation. Yet his faith in Jesus Christ compelled him to preach it. You see, France at that time was so slowly being cloaked in the darkness of Nazi rule. Parts were under direct control and others puppet government. His was still under the puppet government. And just weeks earlier, French policemen, under the orders of Nazi officials, rounded up more than 13,000 Jews in Paris, including 6,000 children. Now, Vichy police or puppet police were arresting thousands of Jews in the unoccupied zone, and reports claimed that they were being shipped to internment camps where they would await their deportation to concentration camps from which few people ever returned. What do we do when the floodwaters rise? This was a question many a people down through the ages have asked. Shirley Tracombe and his congregation in World War II, the Protestant reformers, the disciples in the early church, even the children of Israel as they are fleeing from Pharaoh, crossing the desert, coming up against the Red Sea, wondering, what are we going to do? No doubt when the waters began to part, their fear didn't end, for indeed they had to walk through them and watch. Each wall as they walked between it, knowing that at any moment it could fall. For the children of Israel, for Noah, for many people today, we ask the same question, what do we do when the flood waters rise? At this point in the letter, the apostle Peter is writing to Christians in Asia Minor who are anticipating a storm coming, the flood of persecution that will overwhelm them from the Roman Empire. He has also said to them that not only will you be persecuted, but your salvation is assured. And in our mind, those things are antithetical. They're paradoxical. They, they can't go together. How can we die and yet live? How can we be destroyed and yet be assured of our salvation? And yet there is one example that the apostle will give as the example par excellence of him who died and yet was delivered. That example, if you're a Christian, you're probably already guessing is Jesus. And this is the main thing I want to get across today as we begin to look at this text. There are several things inside of it 
that have got Christians down through the ages all tangled up. There are denominations that have splintered and broken off over the verses in this text. I purposely shortened this passage because I knew there was all kinds of landmines in it. And today I want to address two of the big ones specifically. But before I do so, I want to lift up the main idea or the main point of this passage so you don't miss the forest for the trees. And that is this, is basically the idea is that the sufferer becomes the victor. The sufferer becomes the victor. If you're taking notes, write that down. This is the way to say it in a biblical way, and I'll give you another way too. But here's, here's the main idea of this passage is that the sufferer becomes the victor. Another way to say it, which I think is perhaps for our sake just as good, someone said to me between services, nowhere to go but up. Like, yes. <laughs> I think that's another way to say it too, nowhere to go but up. But here's how it starts. It starts with suffering. The first verse focuses in on Christ and his suffering. And then it has this this interlude, this middle period, this central portion. And then it jumps back out again to the victory at the end. So like any good story, there's a conflict and there's a complication and then there's a resolution. So don't lose it in the complication in the middle. But see at the beginning, here's this incredible suffering But in the end, there is an exaltation beyond any exaltation ever, beyond the Super Bowl, beyond the MVP, beyond the CEO, beyond anything else. Here is the ultimate exaltation. And so watch as we point out from 1 Peter chapter 3 that for Jesus in his high call to go low and for Christians in their high call to go low, once you have gone low, there's nowhere to go but up. In other words, the sufferer becomes the victor. To the sufferer goes the spoils. First Peter chapter 3 says this, starting off with suffering. Verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order that for the purpose so that he might bring us to God. Now, here's the interlude, the middle section. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared. In which a few, that is eight persons, i.e. Noah and his wife, his three boys, and each of their wives, that makes eight, were brought safely through the water. Now, the baptism that is the antitype or that which corresponds to this now saves you, not as a removal of the dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through, now it comes back out again, here's the exaltation, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has been exalted more than any other, for he has gone into heaven, is at God's right hand. He rules above all with angels and authorities and any power that you can possibly imagine having been subjected to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So suffering and exaltation. If only we could have one and not the other. And yet what scripture teaches us is the exact opposite, that in fact there is no exaltation without suffering. And if you want a perfect example... Of course, look to Jesus, his life, his ministry, his incarnation or coming to earth 
begins with suffering, with Mary's suffering. It proceeds into his suffering. And it ends, however, although in death, not in destruction or not in defeat, but instead his ultimate victory. Look at how this text packages it again. I want you to see this. Here are the bookends or the brackets that hold this thing together. You have to get this idea because I'm going to ask you to dig in really deep here in just a second. But here's the overall picture, the point. The sufferer in verse 18 suffered once, not over and over again, not on a weekly basis, but once for the sins of the righteous, for the unrighteous. He did the swap or the exchange that we talked about last week. And then after doing that, the sufferer becomes the victor and the victor through the resurrection. If he wasn't resurrected, he's dead. It's no good. But through the resurrection, has gone into heaven, is ruling at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. So the sufferer becomes the victor. Why is that so important, Pastor Jeremy? Well, because as we're called into suffering, there's a number of ways we could go about it. But if we are Christians, if we are followers of Christ, then we look to Christ as our example or our model. And what we see is that as Jesus goes through suffering, He ends in triumph. And therefore, as we go in suffering, guess how we end? In triumph. This is something in the New Testament that is called the conformity pattern. Here's a slide. Here's a slide of that. Here's a fancy definition. But it actually packs in a a lot in a short phrase. Is that Christ's experience and activity becomes prototypical for believers. Christ's experience and his activity becomes prototypical for believers. Listen up, kids. This is why you hear things like, you know, even as Christ forgave you, so should you also forgive others. Or be ye tender-hearted and high, kind, just as God in Christ forgave you. Or forgive us our debts as we forgive others. There's all these, as you have, so too we's. And the idea is, in Greek, it's, Kathos kai, which means even as, and it's this conformity pattern. But what happens is when we swap out our life for Christ, we take on his life. And therefore, he's taken on our sins, but we've taken on his life. And therefore, because we've taken on his life, we take on his righteousness, his morality, his experience, and his pattern of living. And everything we do after that is patterned after him. In other words, here's another way to say it. We said it earlier. Check this one out. Bang, bang, choo-choo train. As the leader goes, so to the followers. Remember that one? And therefore, as Jesus goes, so too do we. As Jesus suffers, so too do we suffer. But as Jesus is exalted, as Jesus is glorified, so too are we, as long as we are coupled or connected to him. And this passage is really advancing that. It's so important for us to see that We are connected to Christ. Therefore, when we enter into suffering, it's not random or meaningless or purposeless, but it is according to the divine and sovereign plan of God that follows after Christ our maker. As France was slowly cloaked in darkness and Nazi rule, surely many people were asking, what should they do when the waters rise? Pastor Tracombe urged his congregation that morning. These are the words of his very sermon. To resist the growing godlessness with the love of Christ 
He said to them, tremendous pressure will be put on us to submit passively to this totalitarian ideology. If they do not succeed in subjugating our souls, at least they will want to subjugate our bodies. The duty then of every Christian is to use the weapons of the spirit, loving, forgiving, and doing good to our enemies as it is our duty. Yet we must do this without giving up and without being cowardly. We shall resist our adversaries when they demand of us obedience that is contrary to the gospel. But we shall do so without fear, without pride, and without hate. What do we do when the floodwaters rise? I'm glad you asked that question. There are two water analogies in this passage that I want to make use of that Peter is using, but I want to make sure we use them the right way. And the, and the first is the flood and the second is baptism. The flood and baptism. Obviously, there's water involved there. Now, some people argue about how much water in both the flood and in baptism. That's not the point that we're getting into today. Instead, what we're getting into is what Peter is trying to communicate And so I want to start first with the idea itself of water. In the Old Testament, in the ancient world, to the people that Peter was writing to, when he said water, what did they think of? Here's a picture of that. In the ancient world, the waters were a picture of judgment. It symbolized death, destruction, mystery, Darkness and the unknown. If you go too far in this thing, you might fall off the edge of the earth. Watch out. We don't know what's at the bottom of the abyss. Some giant sea monster or Leviathan or something might come out of the darkness to destroy you. Therefore, in the ancient world, when they think of the waters, they think of the flood, they think of judgment. Well, this is certainly consistent with what we see in the Old Testament when, when the world is filled with sin. And it is universal. God destroys the earth with water. Here comes judgment. Now there just so happens to be one person at that time who has faith in God. His name is Noah. And what we see then in Noah is a pattern of salvation or a paradigm that is prototypical or normal for us to experience. And what happens then is there is universal sin. Sin everywhere. And God in his righteousness and holiness and justice is going to judge it. That's what a just God does. And so he brings the water to destroy the earth. But because Noah has faith in God, God will deliver Noah through the waters. He's not delivering him by the waters. He's delivering him through the waters. Listen to those prepositions. That's important when we go to the next analogy. What happens is Noah places his faith in God, not in the water, But in God, Noah places his faith in God. And as a result, God gives him a vessel or a mechanism by which he is delivered. And that is the ark. And so when Noah places his faith in God, the symbol of his faith, the symbol of his faith is the ark. And he goes inside that and that thing delivers him. But it is the faith that saves him that God responds to. The next one. Baptism. Baptism, same thing. In the New Testament, believe it or not, the waters of baptism can also be compared to the waters of judgment. 
Now, when we think of baptism, also, if, if you're a Christian in your church, you think, wait, 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 baptism, salvation, you know, like, believe in Jesus, get saved, get baptized. Well, hang on a minute. What happens if you stay in the water? You die, you drown. But because Christ is resurrected, you too are brought out of the water and therefore you don't die. And even though the waters of judgment closed in over the top of you, you are delivered not by your own effort, but by the resurrection of Jesus. So the waters then are a symbol of you placing your faith in Christ. And when you do so, God delivers you in a vessel up out of the water. Well, where is the ark? It's called a cross. And the wood that contained the boat is now the wood that contains the Savior. And he is crucified upon it. And when you go into him, you are delivered through the water. How does Paul sign all of his letters? In the ark. Dear so-and-sos, apostle of Jesus Christ, writing to you from in the ark. No, what's he say? In Christ. Look at those two terms. They're all over the New Testament. Paul is inside his vessel of deliverance. He is being saved and brought out through the death and judgment of universal sin that brings on destruction by being in Christ. By grace through faith, just like Noah. And so he's delivered. And so now we come to these two analogies in the New Testament. This is the hard stuff. This is what I'm going to get into for a minute. And I kid you not, there are monster denominations that have gone wrong on this. And I want to show you what the Bible says. You ready for that this morning? You ready for what the Bible says? Okay, here we go. Here's the thing. First Peter chapter 3, 19. Look at this. Here's the Bible up on the screen. It says this. In which he, that's Jesus, proclaimed the spirits in prison. And then it goes into the Noah and the water stuff. And some of us see that verse and we go, aha, Halloween. Jesus went down to the spirits in prison. Spooky, scary. What really happened there? Well, first of all, you need to ask the question. the, The word here is translated proclaimed. Some Bibles say preached. Yes, what did he say? And to whom did he say it? And I'm going to show you why this is so important in just a second. But you ask the question, first of all, to know what's going on here. What did Jesus say? And to whom did he say it? Well, the Greek word here, and I know I don't do this all the time. I'm not, you don't have to remember this. I just want to make the point. The Greek word here is keruso. And the reason I'm telling you that is because there are two Greek words for proclaim. And it works like this, okay? Boys, listen up. Here's what happens. If you have a really good basketball team, and you know your team is going to win, you may want to recruit someone to your team, and you're like, hey, come on over. We have the best team ever. You've really got to be a part of this. I promise you we are going to win. Look at all the players. That other team has no chance. That's called eungelio, or evangelizing, or gospelizing. Or drawing someone in, proclaiming a victory, but with the intent of sharing the good news so that they convert and come to your side. That's the Billy Graham crusade. That's the conversion thing. That's proclaiming the gospel in that way. But there's another way to proclaim the gospel. Let's say you did that and you recruited your team and you played the game. And after you played the game, you won. And then what do you do? 
You go home and you knock on the door and you're like, hey, mom, we won, we won, we won. It was so great. Look at this. Blah, 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 blah. That is this word here, Eruso. That is proclaiming after the fact what has already happened and saying, we won. Yes, you're preaching. Yes, you're preaching the gospel, but you're just preaching the victory with no intent of communicating any conversion or good news whatsoever. You're just saying, this is the way it is. Look, it's awesome. That's the word that Peter is using here. And that's very important because when you read the next word, you hear spirits in prison. And first, probably if your mind is like many influenced by long tradition, you think of human souls. You think, oh, Jesus went down to maybe Hades or maybe he went to purgatory. I don't know. And he gave people a second chance. Is that what this is saying? No. First word is Jesus is going down there and saying, I won, I won, I won, I won. Look at this. What's the next word? The next word is spirits, which if you search that word, you will find that every time it's used in the New Testament, except once it's used of demons. Every single time that word for spirits is used in the New Testament It is used for fallen angels. You can look it up in Jude chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. Jude chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. Every time that word is used, it's talking about demons. So what happened? Well, we know in the time of Noah that the sons of God inhabited with the daughters of men and all these other things. There were rebellious angels and blah, 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 blah. And so what most commentators think, now there's, Tons of interpretation going on around this passage. But what most modern commentators think, with the exception of a few, but the majority of evangelical commentators say, is given the understanding of those two words in this term, what we believe happened there is that either in the three days that he was in the grave or in the 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension, Jesus put on a parade. Did you hear me? Kiddos, you should be excited about this. He may not have been throwing candy, but what he gave out was a whole lot better. Jesus put on a victory parade in royal Roman style. And so what he did is grabbed his captors as the captain, as the victory, and paraded them through the streets and proclaimed his victory. He drug behind him the evil demons and wicked spirits and said, look, I won. There's the cross. There's my grave. Here I am. It's over. It's finished. You lose. And there's nothing you can do to stop it. You thought you destroyed me by suffering? I won through suffering. He won. And so just like the Roman generals would march through the city and parade their victims and captors behind them, so too did Christ. And we don't know. Was this in the three-day intermittent period? Was this in the 40-day? When was this? We don't know. There's all kinds of stuff. But what I'm telling you is, there is such a thing as hell. There's no such thing as purgatory. The Bible never talks about purgatory. But every time, except for one, that the word hell is mentioned, It's on Jesus' lips himself. The only other time, it's on James, his half-brother. 
The Bible talks about hell and never, ever, ever does it mention purgatory. So I know that, you know, could ruffle feathers. But what happens is I think we as people, we really want to be compassionate. And we don't know what's going on inside people's souls. And so we do everything we can to try to, like, soften things and smooth it out. And maybe there's a second chance. But do you know what the Bible says? Hebrews 9.27. Just as it appointed for man once to die. After that. Judgment. There are no second chances once you're done. The Bible is very, very clear. It's frighteningly clear. If my knees are shaking as I'm saying that, and if you're not hearing it, I hope you do. We don't know people's hearts. We don't know their souls. We don't know exactly where they go, but only God does. And once they do, he judges. And he judges the same way he judged Noah and the same way he judged Paul. Are you in his vessel of deliverance or not? And it's not a boat. It is Christ. If you are in Christ, then you are free from the fires of destruction, but if not, you will be destroyed. Because God is a just judge, and he will not let sin go unpunished. That is an encouragement. That is a warning. And you're, if you're here, sitting here today, you have been duly warned, and there is no excuse. Do not leave without knowing for 100% certain that you are in Christ. You must believe in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins. This is not for your sake, my sake. This is for yours. If you believe, it has nothing to do with me. If you reject, it has nothing to do with me. I'm talking about you. Number one, the first application from this is that there's no second chances. The Bible says once to die and then the judgment. When Jesus went parading, he was proclaiming his victory. He was not preaching the come over here gospel. He was saying, it's finished, it's done, I won. Now, that's a warning. That's, there's also an encouragement to that. Let's think about it from another angle. I, I leaned in hard there. If you're not believing, I want you to believe. But here's another, and if you have questions, come right down here afterwards and talk to anyone who's up here. We'll be glad to help. But here's the thing. If you believed, then that portion's an encouragement. How is that encouragement, Jeremy? You just talked about judgment. Well, think about this. Noah gets in the ark, and it rains and pours and storms for how long? 40 days and 40 nights. And then how long was he in the ark? A long time after that, all the floodwaters had to subside, and the land had to dry out, and things start growing again, and eventually he can get out of the boat. But it was no short float. This was not a carnival cruise. He's probably throwing up, losing his lunch, and wondering when the lions are going to eat him. It's not a good day for him. He, we think he gets into the boat, and he's like, all right, I'm done. It's good now. You got to remember, the storm's still ahead. He escaped judgment, but the fire of judgment is coming around him. If I'm Noah, I'm like, uh, Lord, are you sure about this? I'm glad I'm in the boat and everything. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm happy to be here. But is this boat going to make it? Is this thing going to hold? 
He's got to believe. He's got to keep on believing. He's got to trust the promises by faith that God will get him through those waters of destruction. That it's not going to end and be done. But there will be something more to come after God has destroyed this thing. Christian, what are you believing? If you're in Christ, you're walking through the fires of destruction and you're going through life. These people in Asia Minor are about to be burned at the stake. They've got to believe that, boy, Lord, this is hot. But afterwards, there is more to come and you are making a new heaven and a new earth in which the sufferer will become the victor. Noah, the early church, Pastor Tracome, me and you, it's all the same. When you take that high call to go low, nowhere to go but up. The sufferer becomes the victor. Number one, that's the, that's the spirits in prison. Number two, what about this thing with baptism? So there is the flood. Now there's baptism. Whew, I catch my breath. So what about baptism? All right, you ready for controversy number two? First Peter three twenty one says this: the baptism which corresponds to this. Corresponds is antitupo, which is anti-type. It is a type. It's the anti-type. Um, not as a removal of the dirt from the body, hear that, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, what happens is this. Because of tradition, because of men, because of ritual, because of religion, because of legalism, because of sinfulness, because of whatever, we're always trying to look for some way we can save ourselves other than Christ. And so some people... Who just mm, feel the need to do something to save themselves. Or maybe they say they don't. I don't know. But some people read this verse. And they come to the conclusion that water baptism is a means of grace. It's the thing that saves you. In fact, there are at least two. And I could name them, but I'm not going to. Two denominations. Two groups of Christians that specifically believe. In something theologians call baptismal regeneration. In other words, at the moment you go into the water, when you come out, you become alive again. That's called baptismal regeneration. And they actually think, there are some that are so strict that like if you're going up these steps and there's a baptismal tank. By the way, if you haven't been here, ours is hidden right down there behind me here. There's the baptismal tank and you die on the way up, you're not going to heaven. You have to be baptized in order to be saved. That's what they teach. Does this verse say that? Is that what the Bible teaches? Let's look at it again. Verse 21, it says, Baptism which corresponds to this now saves you. Did the water save Noah? No. What saved Noah? Not the removal of the dirt. From the body. But. The appeal to God. By grace through faith. For a good conscience. And through. The resurrection. Of Jesus Christ. That's what brings you. Out of the water alive. Not the water. Sorry Carrie Underwood. It's not the water. 
faith in Christ saves. Let me just spell it out really clear. Water baptism does not save you. Water baptism does not save you. Water baptism does not save you. Spirit baptism does. Spirit baptism does. Spirit baptism does. What is spirit baptism? What does it signify? Spirit baptism occurs when the Holy Spirit of God goes inside of you and regenerates you, taking you from death unto life. It is what the Spirit does, not what the pastor does, that brings you to life again. So, at the moment you believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit goes inside of you to all believers. It is not unique to some, but it is universal to all that those who believe in Jesus Christ receive the Holy Spirit. And it does not require a special sign. So, what's the point? The point is this. Look, Jesus is the victor. We know that. We believe that. We affirm that. But we also have to say Jesus is the sufferer. And the ultimate victor is also the ultimate sufferer. And the ultimate sufferer becomes the ultimate victor. And the way he becomes the victor is through the suffering. This high call to go low means we have to follow Christ. As the leader, so too with us. But once we go low, there's nowhere to go but up. The suffering that the enemy meant to bring us down actually provides for our deliverance. When Jesus, listen, how do, I, how do you apply that to your life? You've got to preach that gospel to yourself over and over again. If you're like me, sometimes you struggle with negative thoughts or whatever and emotions and yada, yada, and you start to get down on yourself. You've got to understand. Listen, the enemy is trying to enchain and enslave you and tell you that you lost and the victory is forfeit. But the parade of Christ actually shows you the irony that the people who are telling you that you're in chains are actually in chain themselves. And we are not the ones who are in chains, but instead the ones who have been freed. We are following Christ in his victory. And just like we sang earlier, we can say, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. With your blood, you bought my freedom. I was a prisoner. But now I'm free. The king has conquered and released his people and enchained the enemy. And that is the proclamation that's being made here. In February 1943, Vichy police arrived at the city of Pastor Tracombe and cut off all the roads from the little town, disconnected the telephone line to his home and turned off his power. He knew that they were coming for him, two police officers and a major A major and a lieutenant knocked on his door. His wife answered the door and greeted them and explained that their husband was away at a church youth group meeting. And she invited them in to wait in his study. When he arrived, the police officers informed him that he was under arrest and told him to pack a suitcase. He was allowed to say goodbye to his wife who had just finished cooking dinner. And the two of them spoke briefly and then remembered Jesus is saying, if your enemy is hungry. Give them something to eat. So they turned to the two police officers and invited them to dinner. Officers looked shocked, hesitated, and then agreed. They sat down and ate, and before they finished, the news of the pastor's arrest had spread through the village, and members of the congregation began appearing at the house one by one, leaving gifts at the door. Some brought sardines, others brought socks, Someone even managed to scrounge up some chocolates and another a candle. 
Mrs. Tracombe commented that they had no matches to light the candle, and the police lieutenant himself contritely contributed a pack. At this time, the major began to cry and said, I've never seen a farewell like this. After dinner, Tracombe embraced his wife and children and said goodbye. The police officers then escorted the pastor out the front door and found a parade of people lining the street. To his surprise, the congregation was on both sides. No one said anything threatening or even spoke harshly. Instead, the pastor passed through rows of Christians and began to sing a German hymn. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side. Man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabbath, his name. From age to age the same. He must win battle. Mighty fortress is our God. The suffer comes the victor. As with Jesus, so too with us. Father, we thank you for the victory we have in Christ. We suffer and I I confess that I sin and don't do it well. Not well at all. Often I exchange tit for tat, this for that, and very rarely good for evil. I pray, God, that that would change, that you would help us. You would help me, that you would help us overcome evil with good. Like Noah, like the disciples, like Jesus, like Pastor Tracombe and his congregation. Lord, help us to trust in you when the waters rise. Looking to Christ, our Savior and Deliverer, in him we trust. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.